Good morning, everyone. This morning we're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we are discussing today one of the issues that comes up in this section is presumption or making assumptions about things that we maybe should be more circumspect about. I'll begin while we're on the title slide here covering what we the verses we did last week and then just verse 10. I'll read those now because we're going to have a summary here in a bit. So last week we did 1 Corinthians 10, 7 through 9. Let me read that. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. And I'm going to read verse 10 as well. And then we'll go further as we go through the sermon. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we're allowed to look into these things, your mighty deeds, your love, your mercy, your judgment, your justice, and all the things that are revealed about you. So we may learn how to live, believe, and serve you and believe and trust your promises. Give us wisdom as we search your scriptures today. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So we go to verse 10. And then the following slide, I have a parallel uh, structure that was in the Greek that I wanted to show you because it stood out so prominently when I was looking at it during my studies. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 10. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, you notice the ESV has the destroyer capitalized, and I'll, I'll explain that as we go along. Now, the word grumble, I have a word there, uh, probably pronounce it wrongly, onomatopoic, onomatopoic. And it's a big way of saying it's a word that's based on a sound, I heard that in seminary, and I forgot what that was about, but there are words like that. I, I list, uh, do I list any here? No, I don't. I have some of my notes. Buzz, hiss, the one we're looking at here, murmur, how about clap? It's based on a sound. So this uh, word gangudzo in the Greek uh, is uh, based on the Hebrew word, but it's one of these type of words that sound a certain way, and then thus we make a word and use it. So it would be like in your big crowd, in a big crowd, and they don't like what's going on. Have you ever been in a stadium where people start murmuring? Murmur, 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 murmur. We think the ump got it wrong, murmur, murmur. So the issue here is to not murmur or grumble about God's mighty works, God's provision, and how he cares for and takes care of his own people. And we might think that it would be absurd 
to do such a thing, which in fact it is, but when we begin to get our eyes off the promises of God and forget his mighty deeds and forget to be grateful about what he's already done for us, and we start looking at the difficulties of life, it's very easy to fall into uh, grumbling about things that, in fact, we should be thankful for. So in the Greek, and I, I have this in my notes so I can explain it, there's a way in the Greek in which an imperative can be negated in such a way that the implication is to stop doing something. In other words, you have a negation of a present imperative, and that's what we have here. And it does have a double negative, but basically saying don't grumble. Negated present imperative. Stop grumbling. Stop grumbling. That's what Paul's saying. Now, what does he mean when he says that to the Corinthians? Well, we already know from the first nine chapters of 1 Corinthians that they were complaining. And we'll get to that in a bit, but the grumbling had to do with Paul's prohibition of going to the pagan temples, the prohibition of uh, sexual immorality uh, and, and uh, eating eat, uh, meat offered to idols. I have some statements here. Here's one I put in my notes to make sure I got it the way I wanted to tell you. So in, in, here, in here, stop grumbling. Let me read the statement I put in my notes. The grumbling of the Corinthians may well have been due to their ordinary gathering with prayers Thanksgiving and gospel teaching. Their table fellowship was dining at meals in ordinary homes while the services at the pagan temples were popular, lavish, sensual, and created great business opportunities. We also know that they grumbled about Paul as their unimpressive Apostle working as a tent maker. And with some of that, we get from 2 Corinthians. So there's the context. So you have a massive temples, Aphrodite, uh, Poseidon, I mentioned, I gave a list last week of the various pagan temples. And their, their uh, service is very impressive, but much wealth, very sensual. And here were the Christians with no temples, no church buildings, but ordinary homes in which to gather, thank God for his salvation, break bread, encourage and exhort one another, and so forth. And that wasn't going to create any grand opportunities. But the temples that the pagans had surely did. So that's, I believe, the source of the grumbling, which we can see from First and Second Corinthians. Now, let me give you some more verses. You'll have to have your pen working and jot down some as we go through this. Deuteronomy one twenty-seven. You don't have to turn there. Jot it down. Deuteronomy one twenty-seven. And you murmured in your tents and said, "Quote, because the Lord hated us." He's brought us out of the land of Egypt 
to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Deuteronomy 127. Here are the people who had been delivered from Egypt turned around and says, the Lord hated us. Now that's murmuring and grumbling in an awful way. This happens in a much lesser sense, but it does when people raise children. Didn't used to seem that way. I remember when I was a kid, I didn't ever heard of anyone, even teenagers that I knew. Nobody was saying, I hate my parents. I never heard that. But now it became very common. And they say, I hate my parents. I hate my parents. I hate this. I hate that. And boy, that verbiage has become easier to latch onto. And this ought not to be, but how much more should it not be about the Lord? How could they think that God hated them? And thus, uh, turn against him. The Lord is perfect. Parents are not perfect. In fact, some people are miserable, horrible parents. But God has our best interest in mind. But let me now quote this. I'm going to quote one. Write this down. Deuteronomy 7, 8. So they say the Lord, Yahweh, hated us, took us out of Egypt. Well, they forgot. They cried out for for him to do that. They got what they asked for. They got out. So let me read Deuteronomy 7 and verse 8. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord, that's Yahweh, brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So the the Lord loved them. And he answered their prayer. And he kept his promise to the patriarchs. But then, when things are bad, we said, the Lord hated us. Because now things aren't going so well. Now, the destroyer, now they were grumbling. The destroyer is identified as the angel of the Lord in Exodus, which would be God himself. Exodus 12, 3, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord, that's Yahweh, will pass over you. He will not allow the destroyer to come into your house and smite you. I've talked about this before. Now, some would say, well, that's Satan. No, it's, it's God that passes over. And uh, God, when we have redemption, is satisfying God's wrath. So let's go to the next slide now, and I want to show you that construction. When I printed out the Greek, and I always start by looking for repeated terms, this just stood out. Now, I'll, I had this transliterated, but mayday means must not, and it's in each of these verses, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, uh, verse 10, mayday. I thought of a memory device. Mayday is a conjunction that we would translate here, must not. Um, when something is really bad and there's danger and it has to do with a, a, a plane or a ship or whatever, the universal distress call is mayday, mayday. we got problems. When you start grumbling about God, mayday. 
This is this is this is a the danger. We're going to collide into a rock if we don't stop doing this. Mayday. So must not, and then there's this even as. So it starts out with must not applying to the Corinthian Christians, and then kathos is even as. And then it gives an example how the Israelites called our fathers did that. Verse 7, don't become idolaters. Verse 8, don't indulge in immorality. Verse 9, do not test Christ. And verse 10, do not grumble. So that is the parallel construction. Today we started with verse 10. A little different word in 10, but it's simply because it's an adverbal form of the same word. So it's the same construction. That's how you start interpreting scripture. Look for repeated terms and themes. And it'll, it'll help you a lot. So, if we have idolatry, immorality, testing Christ, and grumbling, mayday, mayday, SOS, we need spiritual help real fast, because this is a bad situation. So, may that not be the case. Uh, if you want to jot this down, Psalm 106, R106, the Septuagint of 106 is a different numbering. Is filled with grammatical links using these same words. So on your own time, when you can, read Psalm 106. Uh, let me, I have a couple of them written down here. <coughs> Excuse me, Psalm 106, 23. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Notice there, it's God. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So it was God's wrath that he needed to be saved from. But you can look that up. Now, here's a statement I put in my notes here. Despite all of this rebellion against Yahweh and his love and mercy, God is still forgiving and compassionate. God forgives sin. God is compassionate. God is loving and he delights to forgive those who turn to him. God is merciful to those who realize the error of their ways and turn to him. That never changes. It never will change. The warnings aren't here to make us feel hopeless or to give up. The warnings are there because there's still time to get back to God and to serve him and to honor him. One of the greatest things we can do is be thankful that he's been so merciful to us. Uh, God is a loving God. Let me just cite some little bit from 106. If you want to read that as part of your reading plan this week, it would be great. So 106. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress. Verse 44, when he heard their cry, he remembered his covenant for their sake. He relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. You see, we, they, Israelites, and we, the new covenant, are to remind ourselves of God's mighty deeds because they reveal his nature at the same time as warning us. Now, let's go to verse 11. 
1 Corinthians 10, 11, ESV. Now, Paul says, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. If you were in Sunday school, Eric was teaching about that. We are living during that end of the age period, which began on the day of Pentecost and goes until the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. I think I have that. Do I have that in my notes? No, I don't. But it, we're still in that time, and it, it's of unknown duration, but it doesn't go on forever. And we are to learn. Why do we have to learn from this? They're in the Bible for that, that reason. It says that. Two things are true. They happened. This is cold, sober history, not myth. Two, they are written down for our instruction. We're not to think, oh, that was for them. God used to be that way. Now he's different. I heard that when I was a child in a liberal church. The good Lord no longer punishes sin. These things, as far as God being angry and so on, that's all from back then. And some people used to think that way. But we know the good Lord is different. Now it's just different. It's all kind of gray. There's no black and white or whatever. But that's not the case. But there is something that is the case, which is the immediate tangibility of what happens. And that, I believe, should be getting our attention. Um, how would you say it? These things happened as examples. It's called in theology, exemplary judgment. When we see an exemplary judgment in the Bible... It demonstrates God's attitude towards certain things. And it doesn't mean that he always has to do it the same way every time or because he must have changed if he doesn't. That's not the point. It says here they're, they're written down for an example. Tupacos is a hotbox. It's only used once here. And uh, one scholar called it a formative model. And it's in some ways, even as are more dangerous now. Because we think, well, it must not really be true. We might think as a teenager, well, I went out and I did all these things my parents told me not to do. Nothing happened to me. I guess I'm fine. It's a big lie. We know people who flaunt the law of God. They do everything the Bible says not to do. And they rejoice in it and have a big party. And even there's been cases of people purposely shaking their fist at God, saying, if you're real, strike me down right now. And when it doesn't happen, then they say, well, see, I told you there was no God. Because they don't understand that we're living in an age where we're to learn from what already happened. And so we need to learn and believe. These things forewarn us of of yet future judgment is absolutely certain. Here's a note I put in uh, to make sure I share it with you. It was my composition here. In our case, 
judgment does not fall immediately and tangibly, accompanied by the words of contemporary infallible prophets. Many people speak and act as if they want it that way, but it is not. Again, quoting from my own notes here, the judgment is real, but delayed. Stop right there. We should know that if we read the parallel. Parables, excuse me. The parables are full of that. A master do, the master does certain things, puts people in charge, goes on a long journey, comes back, and there's an account. There's a day of reckoning, but it's future. In the meantime, they do business how they see fit. The Bible tells us that. The fact that the fire doesn't come out of heaven and burn up the sinner right on the spot is a sign of God's love and mercy and patience, not a sign that God doesn't exist or that God no longer cares. And Jesus laid that out. We're in the church age. God hasn't changed. Back to what I wanted to say. There are many parables. Well, there, I just said it again. They explain this. Neither is any civil society on the earth, the new Israel, with prophets like those in the Old Testament. Eric and I keep saying that. America is not Israel. Israel is Israel. And the Israel now is not yet the Israel that will exist during the millennium when Messiah is reigning on the throne. So... They claim, well, we're, I'm the prophet to this nation or that nation. No, they're false. They're false. God is ruling through the civil institutions he's ordained. Those who claim so speak as if they were such prophets are false and keep being shown to be false. The, the, the end of the ages here is the church age, which continues until the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. During this age, we are expected to live according to what is revealed, such as what we're learning here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The end of the ages has come to all, to all as we're reading here, and is not geographically bounded anywhere, anytime, any place. These examples still apply to any person's. And anyone who names the name of the Lord learns what to do and not to do by his grace from the examples already provided and from providence. I'll talk about that more. Now, I'm going to talk about this tangibility. It's a real problem with contemporary popular evangelicalism. There's such a desire to recreate the tangibility that they read about in the Old Testament, and in some cases in Acts, that uh, groups and prophets and apostles or whoever they claim to be will do anything to get it back. We've got to have tangibility. If we can't get the fire to fall, we'll have a light show. If we can't get the cloud of the presence to go and lead us through, We'll have a fog machine. Somebody was talking to me about this last week. They saw such a thing. And we're going to have a strand, oh, five senses extravaganza, and it's going to be God. And well, how pathetic, poor little 
Christians sitting over, breaking bread, praying, loving Jesus, sharing the gospel, and having fellowship, and bearing one another's burdens, and caring for one another, and loving God, and loving his word. How pathetic is that? And we're recreating the Corinthian problem. Because the Corinthians looked at the pagan temples, and they had everything. Full-blown, sensual extravaganza. Every one of them. What about the Christians? We don't have much, but we love Jesus. We sing simple songs and love the Lord. I'm not against talent. I, I wish I had more of it, and we all probably do. But we, we use what gifts God gives us and that honors him. Don't be drawn astray. Don't spend millions of dollars to create a sensual extravaganza when God called you to teach the word of God. We don't have to be able to reproduce what the pagans have to make people happy. Now, these uh, Old Testament examples of immediate tangible judgment are rightly called exemplary judgments in Christian theology. We already know what God thinks about these things. And that will make us accountable to God because he already revealed it. Does he do more than that? Oh, yes. In in his providence, what he allows, he has civil authorities to punish evildoers and so on. But this longing for tangibility is a fool's mission because you may end up being on the wrong side of it. Let's go to verse 12. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Amazing verse, really amazing verse. The word for thinks, tokeo, can also be translated seems. I seem to stand. I seem to be doing all right. How many who know about the gospel or exposed to Christianity or grew up in a Christian home, how many are thinking, hey, I'm doing whatever I want and nothing's happening to me. The earth didn't know about swallow me like uh, Korah. All these things they tell about. I don't see it happening. So why should I worry? I'm fine. I'm a good Christian. I knew a guy in Bible college who grew up in a Christian home and wasn't serving God. And his Christian mother kept saying to him, you're in trouble. You better quit doing this. And uh, so he'd be out partying with his buddies and wasn't serving God. And so he'd go out and get a case of beer, whatever they were doing, underage. And his mom says, if you keep doing that, and the rapture happens, you still become a Christian, but Antichrist will cut off your head. <laughs> That's what she told him. And so here's this teenager, 18-year-old or whatever, case of beer with my buddies, head cut off by Antichrist. Yeah, I'll, I'll risk it. That's the case of beer. And then when he told me the story, he said, but then God got a hold of him. Dear ones, we can come to Christ. We don't have to wait for the fiery hailstones to be coming down from heaven as they'll be during the tribulation period when the tangibility returns. We know the truth already. Yeah, it will return, the tangibility. Just read the book of Revelation. Now, this is a direct application from Paul. The arrogant knowers, we saw that in chapter 8 in Corinth, are sure 
They stand. They don't see a problem. Paul, why are you so upset about us going to the pagan temples? We know that the idol is nothing. And uh, so on. They thought they were fine. The false confidence in special knowledge and spiritual experiences was a big setup to fail. To fail. Be sober-minded is very important. Circumspect, very important. Thinks dokeo can also mean seems, and it's used in theology to describe docetism, which is saying Jesus only seemed to have a real body. He was really only spiritual. That's an error. So there are those who go by what seems, by a mental state, and so on. Like those who do Eastern meditation in order to have peace. I've heard people say, I have to do this to get peace. I got to go and learn from the pagans how to have peace. So they meditate. And what's the answer to that? Well, your peace only seems peaceful because it's deception. If you look at the societies that are built on that sort of thing, there's anything but peace. It's not peace. It's destruction. True peace is when you're right with God. Even if life is difficult and there are many attacks and problems, peace with God isn't seeming to be happy. It's to be relationally in good standing with God through the blood of Jesus. Seems isn't good enough. Stand will be used. Histomy is used in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about standing on the gospel. On this we stand. That Christ was delivered over the, the gospel in which we stand. So it's objective. So those who are told to stop grumbling, include some, are sure they're the ones in good standing and see Paul as the problem. Let's look at him. What kind of apostle? He has to pay his own bills making tents. Well, we address that. His, his speech is contemptible. That's a quotation of his critics of 2 Corinthians. He's unimpressive. This is your apostle? Oh, man. You should see what we have. We have Robert Schuller. No, he's no longer on the scene. We have the Crystal Cathedral. Well, the point is don't be deceived. Be objective and understand. Numbers 16, 41 said that Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. They blamed the messenger. Let's go to verse 13. And I'll tell you right now, I, I purposely laid this out because I want to introduce this, but I'm not going to go all the way through and expound this. I'm going to introduce it. You're going to have some time to think about it. This is a very important verse. And I'll begin with this verse in three weeks when I preach again. Because I want to go fully into it. And part of the reason for that is that when I was a young man in my 20s, I taught this wrongly for a long time. In fact, a whole bunch of my ministry when I was in my 20s was teaching this wrong. So I feel the burden to get it right. So let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation 
has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Very important verse. And it wasn't wrong for me to want to apply it properly when I was doing a lot of counseling. That's what we did back then. Lots of counseling. And uh, a lot of it had to do either with a spiritual version, what demon's causing a problem or what curse are you under. And another way of dealing with finding the way out by either getting a revelation or a word of knowledge or some wisdom here, do this and don't do that, and you'll find your way out. And so there's a lot of ways of doing that. But now I realize why that was so wrong and also why so many of the people that we fellowshiped with in those days are no longer even serving God. How many just gave up? And it never seemed to work out. Never seemed that the people ever got what the leaders claimed to have for the, the secret. Well, let me tell you the broad categories what was wrong. This isn't about special knowledge, how to. It's about relationship. It's about the God we know who keeps us. The God who paid the price for us. The God who loves us and cares for us. Not me learning a secret. Now let me speak about a couple of the words here in the Greek. One of them is really cool. At least I think it is. There must be something wrong with a guy who thinks Greek words are cool. But the, the common to man is the word anthropology. Anthropos, anthropos, anthropos is man being human being, male and female. Anthropos is uh, uh, pertaining to being human. One scholar even did it, said it this way: "Manish." That made me think of an old blues song, <laughs> "Muddy Waters." I think that's right, "Muddy Waters." Manish, manish boy, I think it was. Well, manish is pertaining to being human. So the temptations are pertaining to being human. That's what it's like to be a human being, temptation. Because we live in a fallen world. The manishness comes from Adam, the first Adam. So what we have is a contrast between the manish person and the faithful God. Now, if we put this in context, some have wondered, how does this come up here in 1 Corinthians 10, given the context of the wilderness wanderers and all their failures? Well, if you look back at what happened, there was a way. There was a way. And the way was to listen to the one God gave them to speak for him to them, which was Moses. God showed Moses the bronze snake, the burner snake put on the pole. They had to attend a meeting. Moses knew what the answer was. We don't have any water. God gave the answer. 
Water from the rock. Strike the rock. We don't have any food. Manna. Store up enough for that seventh day. There were always answers, but yet things went bad and almost all of them died in the wilderness. And in like manner today, there's no temptation that's not what humans face. Some worse, more difficult ones. Temptation to curse God and die, as Job's wife wrongly counseled. Many times things are so difficult, they defy fixing them. They defy the most, they defy money, they defy wisdom, they defy power. We can't fix them. It's too much. And yet the Lord says, no temptation is overtaking you, but what's not humanly common, particular, pertaining to being human, mannish. Dear ones, the battle is that when things are the worst they have ever been, and when things seem as hopeless as they can possibly seem, that at that point, we cling even more tightly to the Lord himself, who says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we boldly say, the Lord's my helper. And I've got to say, there's been times I didn't do that, and I went to a really dark, dark place where I was crippled, couldn't even function. And uh, these things are not psychological theory. They are common to all humans. And I'll say I'm going to start with this next week, but I'll give you a preview. Think about it for, it'll be a few weeks. It'll be three weeks from now. Think about that yourself. What would it take to get out of a horrible temptation? could be temptation to be sin, but a lot of times it's just temptation to give up, which you can't do. Think about it. I'll, I'll give you the big category. It's not technological. It's relational. Technology is knowledge plus technique. That's the word technology. Um, ordinary things can be fixed technologically. You know how it works? You have the technique, you have the tools, you fix it. It isn't technological, it's relational. It's all about the Lord, who he is, what he's done, and what we need. The word temptation, parasmas, means pressure, pressure. And then the way of escape, the Greek word ekbasis, means the way out. Pressure and the way out. What is it? And uh, let me quickly cite Deuteronomy 7.9. I want to leave time and get more in depth in a few weeks on this verse. But Deuteronomy 7.9, um, here's what it says. Know, therefore, that the Lord, that's Yahweh your God, is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him, 
He keeps his commandments to a thousandth generation. Now, there's, in the Greek, um, we often have God is faithful, but this is rather unique, where it says faithful is God. Faithful is God. That comes from Deuteronomy 7, 9. Faithful is God. It's a part of his nature to be faithful and to keep his promises and to keep his sons and daughters from falling off the edge. And uh, he, his steadfast love endures forever. Give you a little preview for a few weeks from now. Jesus went through, Jesus as man, fully human, fully God, went through the temptations during his earthly life, and he succeeded where Israel failed. And what we need is to look to him, not figure out, I can, I can do it, I can go through those. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We'll look at that later. Some applications, and it's basically going to be from John 6 plus one other. <clears throat> to avoid spiritual danger, be content with God's provision. Number two, the only escape from death is to believe in the Lord and trust his provision. I think that may bring us to the gospel. But I promised that I'd cover this numbers 11, 4 through 6, because I didn't get to it last week. So here it is. Going back to the wilderness wanderers. It says this, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Moses didn't know how in a culinary setting to make a good presentation. It needs to look good before it tastes good. And Moses didn't do that. It's just manna. This stuff. What is it? So there they go. Uh, if you're as old as I am, you probably have the same thought when you read this verse. At least maybe if you're in the same type of situation. There was the song by Keith Green. So you want to go back to Egypt? Does anybody remember that? Oh, so you want to go back to Egypt. And he talks about the leeks and onions. And he says, oh, such breath. We're dining out in style. So Keith died at a fairly young age of a, of a plane crash, but that song was so popular in the 70s. But also, it, they forgot that it was the Israelites who were the slaves in Egypt. They were under severe bondage and trial. They were mistreated. They cried out for God, to God. Exodus 2.23, if you want to jot it down, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came to God, and God heard their groaning. Remember, there arose a king who knew not Joseph. And in Deuteronomy 26, 6, the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us. and laid on us hard labor. Verse 7, 
that we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, the, and the Lord heard our voices, our affliction, our toil, our oppression. So when they're in it, it was affliction and toil and oppression. When they get out and they have manna, it was fish for free. And all this wonderful dining, it's amazing how selective memory works. We remember what we want and forget what we used to complain about. And then when things get bad, we flip it around and complain about something else. May God help us from this mannishness so that we might find that way out. Greedy desires in the Greek is an interesting word. Now, I realize the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but the Septuagint is what is cited by Paul many times. But greedy desires is simply the word for lust as a verb and then as a noun. Epithumi, epithumio, to lust, and then epithumia, lust. They, to lust for lust is what it says. Lusting for lust. And those uh, strong desires lead to spiritual ruin. Let's go now to John 6. I'll spend what time I have left in John chapter 6. The entirety of John 6 is a fantastic commentary on this whole issue. It is uh, enacted by Jesus himself, recreation, literally, of some of the same situations as some of the words come up, including the free fish. I just quoted to you about that. So let's uh, turn to John 6. That's where you can be. It's a lot of, it's probably several pages in your Bible. Turn to John 6. I'll try to cover it in a cursory way and then drill down on some of the key issues. John 6 is where they gather, I believe it, Tiberius and their whole big crowd shows up, and they don't have food. They have a boy. Let me read it. John 6, starting with verse 9 here. There was a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. If you've been to Israel, you know. You've been to Tiberias in the area by the Sea of Galilee. The men sat down, about 5,000 took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those seated. So the fish, as much as they wanted to eat, the bread, 12 baskets, you've heard that one. So like the Israelites, they do have the free fish. Multiply two and feed 5,000. That's a lot of fish. I like to fish. That's impressive. I like to eat fish, too. And they got the point. Therefore, when the people saw, verse 14, saw the sign which he performed, they said, truly, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. That is Deuteronomy 18, 15. They recognized this is the Messiah that Moses promised. Now to our, our screen here. So here's what they say. After they just were fed, fish and bread, all they could eat. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
It was not, and then here's the response. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. This is what Jesus said. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Well, Jesus is speaking about his own self, his death for sin as the provision. Jesus had rebuked them just before they made the statement. If you want to look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Then he said, Do not work for the food which perishes, verse 27, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man... That means Messiah, Daniel 7, Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what then, this is verse 28, 29, if you look at it in your Bible, John 6, what shall we do that we, that we may work the works of God? Verse 29, pay attention. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, we've read past that already. As we drill down on this, they don't like how that works out. They don't like what Jesus says, how, him who was sent. They don't like how he presents it. So as they make a connection to Moses and there's an irony. I believe that this is unbelievably fantastic inspired material on John 6. There's irony, okay? They got the fish and the bread, everything they wanted, which under Moses they were complaining they didn't have. And now they're saying, uh, Moses gave us bread. Oh, it was, it was Moses gave us bread. What are you going to give us? says in here they try to make him king. So they make the connection with Moses using our fathers. Exactly the phrase Paul used in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Dear ones, our fathers, this is what happened to them in the wilderness. They're saying Moses gave our fathers bread. So John uses the present incident to show a similar response. Their fathers rejected the bread connected with Moses, the manna, and now they will reject the true bread Jesus offers. Excuse me. So there is an irony here and a connection. Moses gave him manna. No, we want fish and onions and garlic and all the good stuff back in Egypt. Jesus gives them bread and fish. And they're starting to say, well, but, you know, we remember what Moses gave us. What do you have? He says, my flesh for the life of the world. They rejected that. They're going to reject Christ. There's irony here, and it's biting irony, and it should cause us to be sober-minded. John 6, uh, 39, I'm running out of time, 39 through 41. 
I'm skipping down. You'll have to fill it in here. Uh, John, Jesus said before this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So he presents himself as the bread of life. And he calls them to believe in him. And here's what it says. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Notice what it says. So the Jews grumbled. Gangudzo, grumbled, just like in Deuteronomy, about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. This is horrible. But yet it applies just as well to us in our mannishness. He claimed to be the bread of life that came down from heaven. Let me share the gospel with you. Remember here he said, if you look to, to him and believe in him. Last week we saw about the bronze snake. Jesus said, as the Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The ascended Lord, God, the creator, the incarnate son who came into this world and revealed himself to be the very son of God who resisted every temptation, who did many mighty deeds, who came to die for sins once for all, who revealed himself as the true Lord, the true Savior, the Son of God, who saves people from sin. And he, after dying for sins and shedding his blood, ascended to heaven on the third day. And he's coming again to bring judgment to those who reject him, saving resurrection to those who are awaiting his return, who know him. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To repent, to turn from the living for self in the world, and the pleasures of the world, to turn to Christ in order to escape the wrath of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Whatever we have or don't have in this life, whether we're young or strong and strong or older and more feeble or, or wealthy or poor or sick or healthy, whatever our state, nothing is more important than having the bread of life. Jesus is my flesh I give for the life of the world. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust him. He promises all the provisions that we need. Verses 47 through 50, I'll basically just read. I've got two minutes left. This is eternal. You eat whatever bread and fish you want today, you'll be hungry tomorrow. But what Jesus gives is eternal. He said in verse 47 through 50, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Eat of it and not die. In verses 61 through 63, it says five there. That's my doing. I botched it. 63 through 65. Let me, 61 through 63, excuse me. Yeah, that's what it says. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling. So we had the Jews who hadn't yet come to faith grumbling. Now some who were following him as disciples, they start grumbling. It's amazing how grumbling goes along with human beings. Okay, I think we all know that. Uh, His disciples were grumbling about this. Uh, Jesus, knowing that, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken are spirit and life. He points to his ascension. The, uh, The death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord is the proof that we need to trust him and believe him and that he will finish the work at the resurrection. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that though we here are brought face to face with your word that portrays our own selves in not such a favorable light, We also know that you're a loving, compassionate, forgiving God who says these things so that we may have life and we trust you and find forgiveness. And that we may trust you that we might stand by your grace, not by our own thoughts. Help us gain whatever lesson each of us has from these precious verses that you've inspired. Thank you for what you've done. And Lord, we do pray for those suffering in our midst that you give hope and grace and help to each one. And Lord, if anyone doesn't know you, may the day be the day of salvation. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.